Well, friends, again, welcome to the grand opening of Coastline Covenant Church. We are so excited that you're here. Uh, I haven't gotten to say hello to uh, all of you yet, but just seeing your faces up here, and man, we are just uh, incredibly humbled that you were with us here on this journey that really began seven months ago. Uh, seven months of really praying and planning and preparing all for this day. And now that we're here, I just have to tell you, we are just incredibly uh, emotional, uh, excited, and just cannot wait to see what God is going to do. And we are just thrilled that you're here. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, and we really hope that this kind of gathering of people, this worship service can over time begin to feel like a community of people, that you'd begin to feel like people who know each other. And from that, you would develop friendships. And out of those friendships, this place would begin to feel like a family. That is our heart here for Coastline, is that this would live and act and feel like a family. You know, we want to recognize the fact that we are part of the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination, and with that comes a system of hierarchy that is above us, uh, who have been helping us all along the way. And tonight, we're really honored to have Paul Wilson, the superintendent of the Pacific Southwest. So Paul, if you'd stand up. You guys can see Paul. You guys have to know that Paul was there with us at ground zero at the lowest possible point when I thought I was going to be a gardener and Garrick was going to go into commercial real estate. Paul was there. Uh, there is not a chance in the world that Coastline is here today without his literal constant support of us, literally in person traveling down from the Bay Area to be with us all the time. So Paul, we're really honored that you're here today and how well you've loved us. So thank you. You know, in a way, I, I tell stories for a living. You know, part of that is to tell the Bible stories and to help you understand how the Bible stories fit together and how they together tell one larger story. But part of me telling that Bible story means that at times I get to tell you stories out of my life, stories of the things that I have gone through. And in most of those stories, I'm doing something stupid or making a mistake or doing something dumb in some sort of way. Occasionally, I get to do something heroic, but most of the time, they're just stories about how I am screwing up. Now, in these stories, they inevitably have a spotlight on me. It is what I am seeing, what I am experiencing. You are hearing what I am thinking uh, in the story. And so it always very Sean-centric, and, and that's just how we tell stories. When we tell stories, we tell them from our point of view. We share our perspective of what we're seeing. And that isn't just simply how we share our stories. It's how we actually live our lives we live our lives almost as if we are living in our own personal WandaVision episode where we are the star of the sitcom, where people are paying attention to us and it is as if a spotlight shines down on our life and everybody else is in a sense a supporting character in the great drama of our lives. And we want our lives to be those sort of grand stories that are filled with love and romance and adventure and a little bit of risk, but at the end of the risk, we get to be heroes. And it, we want the stories where everything works out perfectly for us. And I think that's why we are so troubled when suddenly the story of our lives turns out to be something different than that. When suddenly we get faced with a, a chronic illness, or love doesn't come quickly for us, or it's a sort of love where we have to work on again and again and again, and it's not easy, where suddenly we struggle and we don't have all of the nice things that we thought, where life is more challenging and we think to ourselves, this, 
This isn't the story I was writing for my life. This isn't what I want. And we struggle in that moment because, again, we imagine our life is some sort of story. I also think that kind of way of thinking that we get naturally stuck in at times explains so much of the relational conflict that we experience. Because in the end, if I think that I'm the star of the show, and if you think that you're the star of the show, well, then we're bound to wrestle for the spotlight in all of our relationships, in our marriage, in our friendships, in, in business, on any team, whatever human interactions we have, if everybody imagines that they are the star of the show, well, then life becomes simply a constant wrestling match. And, and maybe there's some relationships in your life where you're experiencing that right now. I think one of the key things about understanding about Christianity is, yes, it is about faith in Jesus. And it is about coming to understand my own sinfulness and coming to accept that Jesus came to live and die upon the cross for me to take my sin upon himself and to die with it so that I could have a relationship with God clean and forgiven in him. That is the heart of the faith. But it is also to come to understand that life is not about my story, but it's about his it's about learning to step out of the spotlight and to shine the spotlight onto Jesus and to realize that all of creation, all of the stories that we experience in this world, every soul that exists, all of them live in a relationship to him, that everybody lives in submission to him, and our lives are meant to push him into the spotlight and to help him to become great. You know, we don't know exactly what coastline is going to be. We truly don't. But what we know is our job is to shine the light on Jesus and to help people see him. It won't be about how big we are, what sort of building we have, what sort of program we run, but how we're going to help people come to see Jesus and to shine the spotlight on him and to allow him to become the focus of our stories and in doing so, find suddenly the lives that we are desperately looking for. You know, we've been talking a lot about what Coastline is going to be. Our team has been asking the questions. And again, in the midst of all the unknown, there is one thing that we certainly do know. And it's that we think that God has put a common vision in Garrick and Eyes and Hunter, Rochelle, Michael's heart. And it's this, that we believe that the vision of our church needs to be this, that we want to live as God's beloved family, inviting all to experience Jesus. We believe that this is who, who Coastline is needs to be, biblically. And more than that, we believe that this is what God is calling all churches to be. And as we begin to live this out, we're going to find ourselves caught up in the beautiful story that Jesus has for Coastline and for all of us. I want to actually build on that idea today out of the book of John, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, could you stand with me? We're going to be uh, picking it up in verse 9. And this is the passage for today. John 1, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word for us today. Let me pray for us. God, uh, we are so humbled, Lord, to be in the spot and to see what you are building. Lord, we marvel at the spiritual fruit that you are causing Coastline to already bear. And Lord, today, Garrick and I, Rochelle and Michael Hunter, we confess our inadequacy 
to know how to build the church. We simply know how to follow you. And Lord, as we follow you, would you build a family here in this room out of your people who you love, your children. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, any memorable story, it it comes with a hook. It's got a moment where the story grabs you, where it draws you in, where you suddenly feel the tension and where you feel a connection to your own life. It's a sort of moment where it causes you to forget about what's happening in your own life, to put your phone down and to suddenly pay attention to the story and see how the entire thing's going to resolve. You know, when I was on my honeymoon in Mexico, I thought it'd be a great idea to go get scallop tacos for lunch. Friends, that's a hook. Did you hear it right there? And there's a key number of key elements there in that story that draw you in. Number one, it is the fact that it is in Mexico that I need lunch and that I'm going to eat a scallop taco on my honeymoon. And you know already that this story isn't going to end well. You've heard enough stories like this that you've heard it and it's pulling you in and you want to pay attention to hear of the sad way that I blew up the most romantic evenings of my life. See, a hook pulls you in, it draws you in, and it pulls you in for more. Now, the Apostle John, as he begins to tell this story, he wants to present the story of Jesus in a unique kind of way. His gospel has its own kind of flavor to it, and it comes from the fact of who he is. We are told that the, uh, that the disciple John, who writes this, he was the closest friend that Jesus had. In fact, he's called the disciple that Jesus loved. And so we can assume that he has a unique perspective on Jesus, a deeper friendship. There are probably conversations that he had and experiences that he had with Jesus that are different than the others, which really stand out in his gospel. He tells stories about Jesus that aren't in the other gospels due to his relationship with them. John also writes in darkening times. You know, the other gospel writers, they write earlier in the kind of story. They write closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But John writes much later. And because he writes later, that means that the world has changed from when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. It's more hostile to Christianity. Christians are suffering. And so John writes in a way, speaking in troubled times to deeply troubled, suffering people. And since he writes last... He has a way of kind of shaping out the story in a unique way. But before he's going to tell the story, he's going to set the hook for us to pull us in in a way. And John 1, 9 through 13 that I just read, it's his hook. It's his way he's going to set the hook and to bring you into the story. And the hook he's trying to set is to help you understand that Jesus is light and that there's an invitation to you to become a child of God. That is the hook. That Jesus is light and that there's an invitation on your life right now to become a child of God. Now, now why are those the hooks? Why would they have any meaning? Part of it is you have to understand a little bit more about the Bible. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, we have the story of the creation of the entire universe. And we are told before there was anything, there just was God. Existing in all of eternity, outside of time, with nothing else. That everything else was darkness, and yet God spoke into the darkness and created light. That it was different from the dark, and it was the first great revelation that suddenly now, physical light, you could see and you could understand, and it begins the process of all of the rest of creation. But what is also happening with 
physical light is also spiritual light. Because what God is beginning to do is reveal himself to people. He's going to do that by creating people and creating this world and placing them in a garden so that he could show them that he is a God of love and mercy, wisdom, goodness, kindness, and holiness. He's going to reveal that to him so the story begins with light, physical light and spiritual light as God reveals exactly who he is. And yet, with all of the light that God reveals in this moment, it has a familiar ending. Mankind chooses a different way. He rejects God, and into that story, darkness comes in. Except now it's not just physical darkness, which existed before. Now it is spiritual darkness, because now man is driven away from God. And now there's this barrier that exists between him and God, of his own sin and his own darkness. The current state of every human heart today is one of darkness by sin. That is our natural state. Um, you know, as we think about this theologically, there's this idea of total depravity that, that every part of the human life is touched by sin. So the way you think about sex, the way you think about money, the way you think about yourselves, the way that you parent, the way that in your marriage, the things that you aspire to, the words that come out of your mouth, there is going to be a taint of sin on every single thing that you do. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all broken in the same ways or sinful in the same ways. Some of us choose to run into sin, uh, different kinds of sin, different than others. But whatever sin you run into, and we all do to some, it tends to darken our hearts even more, that we can become darker and darker, further and further distant from God, more and more removed from the light, and so we can experience greater darkness in our own hearts. We have a capacity for evil that is shocking, and we all run into that evil in some kind of way. Now, the fascinating thing that happens in the Bible is it then begins to show us not just that the human heart is broken and darkened, but that humans will come together in relationships and their darkness can multiply. The story of Babel, about how mankind comes together to build this great city so that he will never need God, is a story of how sin can become institutionalized. The story about Noah and how there becomes a, a time where the world becomes so evil by the, by the institutionalization of sin that has to be started over. That's another story of how this thing goes corporate. We take a look at the story of Sodom and how it affects our sexuality or Israel at its worst. Sin can go corporate. It can be institutionalized into all that we do. And because we are all corrupted by sin, everything that we touch can be corrupted by sin as well. And so we live in darkened times. Many of us feel like that's happening right now. That the world is darkening that the way that we think about each other, the way that we think about politics, the way that we think about vaccines, the way that we have little trust, our delight in anger, our willingness to mock anything and everything, how fluent we have become in vulgarity, that we're living in darkening times again. And so when we hear some of these things talked about, we, we find some resonance in our own heart and light. And yet as John lives in these darkening times when Christians are suffering, his message to them is that a true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. The message to darkening times is that the true light has broken in, that Jesus is the answer for darkening times when he says that Jesus is light, he is speaking first and foremost about his nature, that he is holy, 
that he is pure, that he is the one who has walked this earth, who has never been touched by sin, never engaged in it, has never been darkened by it. In fact, anywhere that Jesus goes, he drives out darkness and brings in his own light. So he's telling him that, and he's also describing his character, that every way that he acts is good. Every word that he says is true. Everything that he tells us to do is trustworthy, and we can build our light. That's why he says that he is the true light. If he's going to say that he's the true light, then we can also assume that there is a way that we can have false light. I always think about whenever we have this sort of phrase in the, in the scripture about, fault, about true light versus false light, I think about those moments when I've gotten into the car, and I have grabbed my phone, and I've told my phone, I need directions to, give me a place. Malibu. Malibu, thank you, thank you. Malibu sounds wonderful right now, thank you. I need directions to Malibu, and yet instead of going to Malibu, I end up in Corona Del Mar. Now I think, how did that happen? Malibu is a very common place. Everybody has been to Malibu once or twice. I don't know exactly how to get here, but it's not Corona Del Mar. How did I end up, and I realized that I put my trust in my phone, but my phone led me poorly. Has this happened to you? Yes, in this moment, you were the victim of a false light. It presented a way to you that you believed in, and yet it led you far away from where you actually wanted to go. We experience false light in all kinds of places in our life. Some of you have joined dating apps that have been terrible false lights to you. It led you to someone who was awful. And you wonder, how on earth did you ever pair me with them? Robot machine in my hand. Didn't you know who I am at all? How did you pick them for me? Some of you have followed false lights into career paths. You're, I have friends who have gone on to take on massive amounts of debt and put a ton of time into schooling to become lawyers only to quit being a lawyer two years after they've actually gotten the job. They hated it. They followed a false light. Some of you have invested into things that you thought were certain that turned out to be absolutely bankrupt. You see, we follow false light in all kinds of places in our life, and we can follow a false light in our spiritual life as well. He says that Jesus is the true light, though, that we can follow him, that he never leads us poorly. And in fact, in that moment in Genesis when light is breaking into the world, he says what is happening, what John is doing is drawing our mind back there saying, that person speaking in the beginning, that light that came forward into the universe, that wasn't just random light, that was in fact the Son of God. That the story has always been about Jesus, even back in Genesis to today, that he has always been the focus of every passage because every story is about him. Inevitably, every story in the scriptures points to Jesus, as do our stories. They're all meant to point to him. It is meant to be his story in history. And we were meant to respond to him in, in that way. And when we see him in that way, we respond with repentance, humility, and worship. Because that is the only proper response once you realize the goodness and the greatness and the light of Jesus. First, though, before we can really step into that light, God wants to bring us into the relationship with him as his children. That's where it transitions to verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's an incredible story, and it actually catches us off guard. If you think about just uh, religious history, converts to any sort of religion have kind of fallen into different categories or different camps. For some converts to religion, to convert to that religion meant that you joined an army. 
And that you now went out to conquer the world in the name of your God, in the name of your divine being. And in do so, in conquering the world, you began to exert force over them and you showed the dominance of your God over their God. We, we find that story happening with the Philistines again and again and through many of the passages in the Old Testament. There are struggles between gods, these battles to see who will be greater. That is one way that religious thought has kind of developed. That to follow this God means that you join an army. Or what we find in actually in the New Testament is that to follow these gods means you join an academy. When we look at the way that Paul is interacting with the world, to be a religious person meant that you had to be a thinker, that you had to be brilliant, and it was always a study of deepening your knowledge about what is happening. Or it could be that you would then join a monastery or a convent. There are tons of religions out there where to be religious means that you withdraw and you, uh, from the world and you begin to practice stripping yourself of anything that would get in the way of your relationship with God. And it now becomes your entire life just a relationship between you and the divine. So you can be in our army, in the academy, or in a convent or a monastery. That is how religious thought has tended to think about the way that we follow God. And yet Jesus comes and he doesn't offer us any of those things. He said, he says, I have come to bring you into a family. And that's just comical because really think for a minute about your family. In fact, we think about all of our families and how complicated they are. In fact, I believe for many of you that there is someone in your family that you live in an awkward or tense relationship with right now. I mean, that's just human life. That's just the, the human story. We struggle in these relationships, and this is a story that appears again and again in the Bible. In fact, just in the book of Genesis, we find Adam and Eve with a complicated marriage. Cain kills his brother Abel. Noah puts a curse upon his son. Abraham has two wives. Jacob has two wives. Uh, Jacob's 12 sons throw their brother Joseph into a pit and sell him. Joseph has a moment where he can get retribution on them and it becomes like a four chapter struggle about whether he should punish his brothers or not. You see, the entire book of Genesis is a story about bad families. And the reason why it resonates is because we have had those stories as well. In fact, chances are you are struggling right now in a number of parts in your life because of how you were raised or what you went through. How you spend money is shaped by how your parents did. How you date is shaped by your parents' marriage. How you raise your kids is shaped by how your kids raised you. How you coach your kids is raised by how your dad coached you. You see, all these things go back. You know, I spent most of the last year in therapy, uh, mainly because I was looking for a way to light money on fire. Uh, but it was incredibly helpful. It's just so expensive. Uh, but one of the things I felt like, I need to talk about work, I need to talk about life, I gotta deal with all this stuff. And they said, let's talk about your family. I'm like, I'm not here to talk about my family. My dad's awesome. And they're like, yeah, but there's some issues with your family. And I kept saying, I don't want to because ultimately I thought my family was great and my family was great, but there's these seeds of what happened in my family that come through in my life today. And that's true for you as well. So when Jesus says, there, when the hope of Jesus is to die on the cross, to raise the dead, to bring us to God, and to form a family, why? Some of the deepest wounds that we have, some of the most lasting scars, some of the most painful relationships are family. Why is that the ideal? The ideal is for that is this. is because if our families can form us in such a way, then being a part of the family of God can transform us. 
So if our families can form who I am and all of my weakness and struggle and all my hang-ups and all the things I'm stuck in, then joining into the family of God is God's means of transforming us. It is by coming into a relationship with him as my father and Jesus as my eldest brother and the church as the family of God that now I can begin to be healed and transformed and parented again into who God wants me to be. I mean, think about your own father. We have these expectations of our fathers being protectors and solid, steady rocks with all of, always the right answers, supportive to no end, always there for us. And yet our practical experiences with our parents are the other way. We all remember that moment where we, remember, where we found out that our parents weren't perfect. That moment where we saw our parents' humanity. And in that moment, we think, I have this desire for my parents and my dad to be this to me, but here's my experience, and what do I do? Why do I have this expectation of perfection, but why do I have this practical experience of struggle? Part of it is that God intends for us to find these two things in the middle, and as I look at them and say, expectation, reality, and then in that moment, I begin to lift my eyes to him and find there in God our Father the fulfillment of every fatherly desire that I already have. That that desire is placed there in me, and my own struggle with our parents is meant to draw my eyes upwards, not into conflict with them, but upwards again and again, so I can find there in him that fatherly ideal. Because God, our Father, is so loving, is so present, is so caring for us. That is who he is. Think about how we imagine what an older sibling should be like. I mean, we think they should drive us around you know, introduce us to cool people, protect us, you know, kind of be our bodyguards. And yet the reality is most of the time our older siblings forget about us, ignore us, call us dumb, beat us up, tell us that we're dorks. So I have this expectation that my, my family's going to protect me. And then there's this reality where they say that I'm a dork. What am I supposed to do in this moment? Well, the idea isn't to lead us into conflict with each other, but again, to lift my eyes up to Jesus Christ our eldest brother who has sacrificed himself for us, who has given us his own character, has shared everything with us and brought us right there alongside to the Father, who has served as the bridge between us and him. And as we experience family tension here, we come here to this family that is full of very different people from very different backgrounds and very different generations and find that God is bringing us together to form a family and so that in here we find the ideal that we're never able to find in our earthly family. Our vision is to then live as God's beloved family, that it begins here, and we invite all others to experience Jesus. Our hope is that when you come to Coastline, you always feel like you're coming to a family reunion. That's what we want to feel like when you walk into the room. That means that this is going to be a multi-generational church. Full of people of different generations and different backgrounds. And with that comes different preferences and different stories. But if we do this well, it's going to be a church of babies and a church of grandparents. That there's going to be strollers and walkers side by side. That we're going to be doing baby dedications and funerals at the same time. Because friends, that's what a family is. It's very easy to build a young church. It's very easy to build an old church, but if you do so, you haven't actually built a church. All you've had is a class reunion, not a family reunion. See, it's different. 
And God's heart is that we would both laugh at grandpa's toupee and also laugh at the teenager's new piercing and find that the tension of these two things, God is making us a family. And not only is he making us a multi-generational family, he's also making us into a multicultural family. I mean, if you just simply look at any family in the South Bay, you are finding that you are seeing people fall in love and get married from different cultural backgrounds, from different races and different stories who are born here or not born here, and yet they're forming these new families. And friends, I think this is incredibly beautiful and exciting in the South Bay. And if this can be something that's accepted in the South Bay and celebrated in the South Bay, then we really want it in here. Because here in the church, the promise is that we are now a new family formed of all of the nations who have found a greater identity by our kingdom membership than our national membership. Friends, every time we see somebody of a different ethnicity walk through this room, all I can think of is I can't wait for them to bring a little bit of their culture into here so that we can celebrate and enjoy how diverse the body of Christ is. I so badly want that for us. And it means that we're also going to be a warm and a welcoming church. I want to say this really clearly here. Because this is my heart, and I see a little bit of it, but I think we can do better. It's this. is that if we see someone sitting alone at Coastline, that's a crisis. Because if we're going to be a family, that means I'm always looking for the person who's sitting alone because ultimately that's what I would do in my family. If you were at a family dinner, and if grandma sat by herself for 10 minutes without anybody talking to her, that'd be a problem. And if at the same time you could come to church, sit here, and leave, and nobody talks to you, then we haven't arrived at family yet. We're not yet living into our vision. It's so hard as that we would be a place that would do this. And if we can live as that family, what I know is that we're going to get a chance to be a light to people. We're going to give it a chance to shine. Because Jesus ultimately did not just simply come to be the light of the world, but to turn us into lights as well. He both says, I'm the light of the world, and he says, you are the lights of the world. The entire hope that he has is to turn us into reflectors of his light. He desires for us to be light. Look, when they said you should plant a church uh, out of Rolling Hills Covenant Church, I thought, that's insane. How do you plant a church in the middle of a pandemic? But what I've come to see is that there's no better time to plant a church right now because people are desperate for community and connection and friendship. They already know that they don't have the answers, and they've just lived through the most terrifying moment in their life. They're more willing to come, more desperate to hang out, more hungry for community. There has never been a better opportunity to invite people to church than now. That yes has never been easier than in this moment. But the only way that yes is going to stay is that if they walk through this door, or when they walk through this door, they're met by a family of people who are willing to welcome them in and support them in this. Look, Maybe it's as bad as people say out there. Maybe the end is near. Maybe Byron's right that the night has come and the morning is coming soon. Maybe it's all about to burn to the ground. Maybe. Maybe. And if so, if that happens, what I want to do is be ready to meet him. I want to see him, and I want to be a part of a church who is following and living that out, who is pursuing him and is ready to see him when he arrives. But maybe... These are just darkening times for a moment. Because John saw darkening times, but they didn't stay dark for long. Because after these darkened times for him, the church began to grow, and it began to spread, and people came to Christ, and pretty soon it went outside of Israel to the Gentile nations, to the world. That dark time lasted a moment. And what I want to believe is possible is that we are simply in the middle of a dark moment, which makes it only more ripe for the light to shine as we live it out. That this is a moment for the gospel not to be afraid of what is happening amongst us. Maybe this is the moment where the light can shine the brightest. 
in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in churches in general, for the world and for coastline, and for a family and live that out. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that, Lord, these things that we dream for coastline would be made a reality in your kingdom. Lord, that you would see it. And Lord, you would knit us together as a family. That Lord, that you would bridge the gaps that exist between generations. That Lord, you'd bridge the gap that exists between cultures. Lord, that you'd bridge the gaps that exist between political ideologies. And Lord, in there you would make a family that is different and lovingly different and celebrates that difference. And as a result, we could be a place that welcomes others in and pushes your son to the spotlight. May it be so here, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.